Welcome to Startup Happy Hour, sponsored by Content Allies. Grab a drink and join us to hear fun and inspirational stories from startup founders and visionaries who are making a positive impact in our communities and learn how you too can turn your new and exciting ideas into reality. Hey, hey, everybody. It's Diana Chen, your host of Startup Happy Hour, uh, back with another episode. And today I've got um, a friend that I'm really excited to introduce to you all. He's also a client with us at Content Allies, and I just think he's a really cool guy. Um, His biggest project right now is Gun.io, and that is an online platform that helps companies hire elite freelance software developer talent. So they've actually, uh, there's quite some big names that I'm sure you've heard of that have hired them to hire software engineers on their team are Tesla, Cisco, NBC. So they're doing big things out there. Hey, Tasia, welcome and thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, so I always like to start off by, you know, just letting you talk about that big thing you're working on right now. So why don't you, I mean, I gave a super quick intro of gun.io, but I'll let you talk about it. I'm sure you can do so a lot more eloquently. No, I mean, you know, broadly speaking, that's exactly what we do. You know, we connect uh, companies with people um, who are talented in their respective technical field. You know, sort of the value that we add on the company side is, it can be pretty painful and time consuming to hire for a role, you know, whether freelance or full time, there's a lot of things you have to do, you know, assess somebody technically, culturally, and so on, check their references. And we try to um, not only automate that, but um, sort of weave all of the information together so clients can make the right decision uh, on sort of who they want to bring onto their team. Um, and then on the developer side, you know, what we try to do is sort of show, uh, let's say, the creditworthiness of companies. So if you're a freelancer, or even if you're an employee, you want to make sure that um, you're not only working with a company um, that's sort of aligned from a mission standpoint, but also has its ducks in a row, you know, when thinking about the level of financing, you know, what their company culture is like, and so forth. So, you know, we like to think that we vet both sides and, and, and you know, we like to think that it's, it's a big sort of value for the market. And, and at least the, the progress to date has, has shown that to be the case. For sure. So when a freelance developer wants to go and sign up for gun.io, what information do they need to include? And then I guess like, how do you do the vetting process? Mm. That's a great question. So if you're, if you're a freelance developer, um, I, you know, I like to think that it's sort of the promise that we make to developers is that if you're applying to a bunch of freelance opportunities, you know, through your network, um, or through, you know, other job boards, there's a lot of hurdles that you have to cross, you know, to sort of win that client, you have to prove that you're technically competent, maybe not just in their stack, but also broadly, because what if they want to change technologies or they want to try, like there's a new neural network that came out from open AI recently, you know, maybe they want familiarity with that, but they couldn't have asked for that when you were being hired. So, you know, Clients want to know sort of specifically and broadly how good you are, uh, how talented you are, um, whether there's cultural alignment, a bunch of hurdles, right? And so depending on however many companies you apply to, that cost that you bear, sort of that frictional cost um, increases. And, it, and, it, and, it, and you know, it can be very time consuming to sort of win your next project, right? Um, or even uh, find your next opportunity. So in sort of making a platform that, it's like has where a developer has to do that once. We tend to think that it saves a lot uh, developers a lot of time uh, and a lot of just energy, right? So what they have to do with us to sign up is you know take a coding exam uh, in any language of their choice. And we're not looking for let's say particular familiarity with a language. What we're looking for is like you know um, how long was the solution that they put together? How how many minutes did it take? Um, did they write tests? That sort of thing. And so a bunch of different ways that we score the technical proficiency of a developer. On top of that, they have to include their references and the references have to say, hey, look, you know, let's say, you know, Tasia said that he knows how to use Python and yes, he, you know, did something in Django for us, which is a, you know, Python web framework. And so, um, and on top of that, they have to take um, a sort of, I like to think about it as like a work style assessment. They like to basically, they have to take an exam that indicates 
in what sort of professional context they perform uh, the best in. So are they a leader? Do they like to lead a team? Are they an individual contributor? Do they just like to be sort of given a project and given a week or two to come back with a solution? You know, like what, under what style do they work best? So a couple of these different things that um, we'd like to standardize, put in one place, the developer profile. Um, so the developers only have to do all this once, right? So they spend an hour, maybe an hour and a half um, to do all this. Whereas, you know, it may take an hour per, per freelance engagement that they have to find themselves. So it's, you know, it's a lot, but, but you know, we like to think it saves them time in the long run. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that would save them a ton of time, um, and it shows the employers that they're that they're legit already, so they don't have to go through that whole interview process in as much depth as they normally would. Yeah. So how exactly. does your how does your platform do the matching of the developer with the company, or how does that process work? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, you know, I, I listed a lot of different components, right, um, for what we're looking at to understand if a developer is a good fit for a company. So all of these are rolled up into a match score. And so a company, you know, has basically a, a filtered list of, of matches um, that they get that are basically, you know, matched algorithmically. And these different components are weighted. And part of that's the secret sauce. So, you know, I don't want to sort of get into, you know, how each one is weighted necessarily, because a lot of that's a product of running the business for a few years, understanding what clients actually care about and what they find valuable. And ultimately a year or two later, what, their report has actually generated results, right? Like, for example, common bias. A lot of people think that um, you want the best, you know, you want that sort of, you want the person most familiar with the technology at hand that you um, that you can find, right? And that could be the case sometimes, but it's not often the case. And so, uh, or, or it's not mostly the case, right? And so a lot of times uh, a company is really well suited to hire a developer that has broad skills across a variety of general purpose programming languages, has, especially in the early stages of a product, can also hire for a role if they need to find a, a second or a lieutenant for that, uh, and also is really strong culturally, right? Even if um, they perceive like, I want the best, I want a 10X developer, I want a rock star, like that's a trope that kind of exists in the engineering uh, sort of field, they may not actually that may not actually be the best thing for their business. Now, if the business is sort of 50 people, they've raised their B, they need people like line programmers who are just, you know, putting work out, like maybe that's what they need. Um, and so the algorithm kind of weights that and matches the developer against a match score for the company. Um, and so it makes it easy for the clients. Nice, nice. Yeah, definitely don't give away that secret sauce. That's <laughs> what keeps the business running. So take me back to when you first started Gun.io. I know it's been around for quite a while. Um, how did you, and as you're the CEO and founder, so how did you start the company? Who did you start it with? Uh, take me back to the early days. Yeah, sure. So it was um, maybe 2013. Yeah, 2013-ish. And um, it's a long time ago. It's seven years ago. So it's like, it's hard to remember the history precisely. Um, but there was sort of a confluence of events that I think sort of kicked off maybe the second tech boom, like around then, right? Like end of 2000, like around 2010-ish, you know, Facebook was going public, a um, bunch of new tech startups were starting. I think YC was founded around that time, Y Combinator. And um, I had a lot of good friends in college who sort of studied computer science. Um, a lot of my friends who were, you know, like, in the, in the same things that I was into video games, you know, things like that. And, you know, we were just friends. Right. And so I, I had studied, I don't know, international relations in school, and I had no intention of actually working in the technology industry, even though, you know, most nerds grow up with some sort of base level proficiency with, with computers. Um, but I had no intention of sort of working in this industry, but I remember, um, you know, I remember just sort of seeing, uh, my friends would be really excited about working in technology. And I remember, you know, like when you're a kid, you make websites on, on what's that angel fire and geo cities. I don't know if you remember that, you know, I don't know if you're, yeah, yeah. Throwback. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so you're like, huh, like that's actually a job now. Like that's really interesting. Uh, I, you know, and you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, it was a huge industry, right? I mean, um, just like the industry that the web sort of created, and technology sort of created um, generally. And so I just, you know, I remember um, thinking to myself, like, you know, it'd be really cool to work in this industry because a lot of my friends are working in this industry. And, 
it'd be cool to work with a lot of like-minded people, you know, sort of the reality of needing a paycheck hits you when you graduate from school. Right. And so, you know, in school, you're like, you know, you're very idealistic. You think sort of, um, about your impact on the world and then you need a paycheck to be able to pay rent and sort of eat. And so I remember just like a buddy of mine from college and I, we were just sitting around and we were like, you know, we need to, we want, we should make a business because we need to pay our rent and we need to eat. And it'd be cool just to have a business that like enables us to do that. And so we went through a couple of different business ideas. I mean, honestly, you know, I, we did so many dumb things. Um, I'm embarrassed to even list them, but we did a lot can of- Can we hear? I was going to ask, can we hear <laughs> a couple of them just for kicks and giggles? You're wildly so, successful now, so there's nothing to be embarrassed uh, yeah. about anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, well, so, okay, there's there was one idea that we had. And, you know, we had no, keep in mind, I did not know anybody who was a materials scientist or like who understood like physics or like, even 3d printing. Like I hadn't, I had nobody in my friend group that like understood, um, anything about, uh, the industry that we were attempting to like go into. But a friend of mine was like, you know, what would be really cool if we could 3d print implants, like for medical use. I'm like, that is really cool. That's a cool idea. Right. And, but we, there was not a founder market fit. Like we just, it was a really cool idea. And so, you know, I mean, we had a couple thousand dollars saved up each of us from just work. And, um, we, I don't know, I put like 5,000 into it and a couple of my buddies did too. And we, you know, what we did with that money. We like got an office in New York city, I think through like a Regis offices or whatever that are now bankrupt, right. They were like the pre we work, uh, sort of remote office solution and satellite office solution. And we just, we spent it all on office supplies and nonsense like literally just burned it right burn the money <laughs> maybe lasted two months and i remember my parents they were like so like how's that business going and i'm like yeah we got an office we didn't even i don't even know if we incorporated the business like we didn't we didn't talk to a single customer we didn't do anything and we just spent it on an office and office supplies and like did a couple whiteboard things that was it that was probably this like i look back at it and i just go you know wow that was so can i curse on this or no yeah yeah go for it okay it was so fucking stupid and it's like but but i can look back at it and laugh but it's still like kind of embarrassing to think about because it's almost like can i I just can i just ask you what what was the what did you think you needed these office supplies to to uh how did you think the office supplies were going to help you create these implants you know, you know, when you're a kid and you're like, <laughs> you know, I want to be, I want to be successful and successful people have a beeper and a cell phone and like uh, a laptop, right, right. right? So like you sort of try to mimic the success in some ways. That's, I think what we were thinking. We were like, well, we're, once the business is successful, we're going to need fucking office supplies. So we should just buy them now. It's like you got to dress for the job you want, not the job you have. So you're like, well, let me just set up my office for the job I want, not the job I have. Totally. And there's a metaphor there, actually, when you run a company, probably too, that I can talk about, about like, you know, anticipating growth rather than inducing it. But, um, but yeah, exactly. It was, it was, it was a total misstep on our part. A couple other ideas that, that weren't like so bad, but just didn't go anywhere. Right. Um, and so Anyway, you know, we sort of stumbled across this idea, um, sort of because we needed to hire a developer to do something for us. And a friend of mine who's a computer science grad, he was like, Hey, you know, like I, I'm getting outcompeted on basically every online marketplace by, um, you know, developers that are abroad that are working for less. Right. And so we need a place where developers can compete on the basis of skill, not on price. Right. Because ultimately competing on price, um, may initially seem value additive for the client, but in the long run is not because you may have to rebuild the software. You may, it may cost you more in money and time, which you can't get back in the long run. So we were like, Hey, that's a novel idea. Let's go, let's go in on that. And that idea happened to do really well. And we knew it was doing well because within the first two months we were generating revenue, like within the first two months of starting, we were able to create sales. Um, whereas all of the other ideas that we had sort of, you know, thrown at the board, we were not able to generate um, sales. And the way that we did that, because I anticipate that being your next question is, you know, we just went down AngelList and I literally just cold called companies 
And I was like, Hey, we have the service, you know, we found a problem in the market where a lot of people are hiring developers based on price, not on scale. We're trying to solve that. Would you want to use our platform? And if you like it, pay us for it. They're like, cool, I'll try it out. And do that enough times. You know, we did that for eight hours a day, basically, me and my co-founder. And over time, we started getting sales. So that's, that's how we kind of knew that, okay, maybe there's something here. You know, it's so, going on. Yeah. So at the time when you were cold calling all these companies, did you already have a good number of freelance developers signed up through your site? No, um, we, we, we didn't. Um, so sort of like we had a bet that we could. So this is a challenge of any two-sided marketplace, right? Uh, sort of the classic chicken and egg problem. And there's a lot of writing about like how to do that, like at scale and artfully now. But at the time, like there was no such theories, right? Um, born from having, you know, a number of two-sided marketplaces be successful and go public. And so we sort of figured out like, okay, we need both. And um, we weren't sophisticated enough to understand like the relationship of how many we need to each one. So we were just like, let's just spend all of our time, you know, for one month getting companies. And, you know, the, the promise we make to them is not, you should hire the developer immediately but you should check out the platform conceptually and you should see if this aligns with your worldview and this is solving a problem that you face. And when you need to hire a developer, you come and think about us, right? And so we did not go for the sale immediately. And on the, and on the developer side, you know, we wrote a couple of blog posts. We used HN to sort of advertise the business and we were just like, you know, um, hey, this is what we're building, you know, um, and we were transparent about like, we're still working on the jobs part. You know, there's a lot of grace afforded to early companies and like sort of um, entrepreneurship circles and indie hacking circles where developers are, are really patient, you know, because they can kind of see the sausage being made, right? They've worked on web applications before. They know how, how they're built. So they tend to be pretty patient. At least they were. Today, I don't know. Um, so uh, today, I think you have, to have, you have to have your shit together faster for sure. Um, but no, we didn't, we didn't have like a critical mass of, of talent or anything like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That's really cool that you were able to sell just like on a concept alone. That's yeah. pretty impressive. Um, so then take me back to, you said, you know, you didn't really have an interest in tech or startups until after college. So like, what was the path that you were going on before then? What did you want to do with international studies? Tell people more about that. Sure. Yeah. I'm 31 now. So, you know, we're talking about something, you know, 10 years ago. So, but, but I think it's important because I think technology is probably the biggest opportunity and the fastest way to like generate a lot of wealth today, which is, I think why it's attractive to a lot of like ambitious founders and ambitious people who want to get into technology. Right. I think like maybe that was banking, maybe that was law, you know, two decades ago, right? And today, a lot of smart people who are like, you know, generally intelligent, um, you know, want to sort of, you know, um, do have impact. They recognize that the way to have impact is to have wealth, um, want to go into technology, right? And so like, that's maybe the, con the context is maybe worth setting. And so when I was 20, um, you know, I was studying international relations in school, and um, I, I thought I was going to law school. And, um, you know, I'd applied or I'd taken the, the LSAT, which is the entrance exam for law school. And uh, I had gotten into a couple of places, but I, I kind of knew that I didn't, I didn't want to go directly after grad school. I mean, sort of directly after undergrad, like, you know, I'd been in school for 16 years at that point. I liked school, but I just figured like it was important to work. And it was important to understand like what work would be like when the stakes are really high when you're coming out of law school and you have, you know, the albatross of debt around your neck, right? Like I was fortunate enough to not have any debt after undergrad. So I was like, you know what, this is the time to do it. And so, um, so a buddy of mine, you know, we were sitting around the cafeteria and we'd all studied Chinese in school um, just because, you know, I was fascinated with um, Chinese culture, you know, sort of Asian culture broadly, but in particular Chinese culture, always have done martial arts. So I'm like, you know what, I want to go to China for a year and just like train Wing Chun. And that's all I want to do. Like, literally, that was my plan. I was like, I graduated school. I don't have any debt. I have like four grand to my name. I bought a one-way ticket to Shanghai because I figured I could find a job there. And then I could go down to like Southern China where Wing Chun originated and just like find somebody and like train. Like, that's what I wanted to do for a year, two years before going to grad school. So I get, so I get to Shanghai. And 
I'm like, shit, I need money. Like four grand, like Shanghai's pretty expensive even in 2011. And I'm like, shit, I need money. So I, you know, tried to find odd jobs, teach English, which is a common thing foreigners do. But you know, your listeners can't see me, but I'm a dark skinned dude with a big beard. Like you need to look a certain way to teach English in China to like the elite, right? And I think you know where I'm going with that. And so, right, you just yeah, have more they're they're pretty they're a pretty racist bunch <laughs> over there. Just let's just I put mean, it out there. Yeah, it's just what it is, right? It's just it is what like, it I'm, is. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to change the culture myself. Right. And so you kind of have to adapt. So I'm like, I need a, I need a, I need a job, right. That is like going to pay me money and it's not going to be teaching English, at least at a volume sufficient to support my, my economic needs. So I was at like some chamber of commerce event. I got an internship at a, at a, at a company that did market advisor or market entry advisory that turned into a full-time job. I then took another job at a startup and this startup you know, within two years, um, sold for 65 million bucks, which was like an inconceivable amount of money, you know, for like a 21, I think I was maybe 22 at the time, a 22 year old. And I was like, holy shit, like that's, that's pretty cool. Like when I was working at the startup, the founders were really cool. Um, the culture was awesome. It was really merit based. It was really fast paced. Like I, I came in on the weekends, but I liked to come in on the weekends because I felt like I had an impact on the company. And I was not, I was not exposed to that um, before, right? I just, I figured I'd work at the consulting company, I'd work at the tech startup because the guy who hired me for the tech startup was like, "Hey, you want to go into law? We're doing a lot of M and A. That's our primary growth strategy, and you should take this job here and like help me make contracts and help me buy companies because you'll get you'll get insight into how law is used or or sort of you know." Um, how the law works uh, in a business context and what we need to be careful about and how that works internationally and all this stuff. I'm like, that sounds pretty neat uh, because M&A is something that I think a lot of aspiring attorneys want to work on. You know, it's prestigious, it's high, you know, fast paced. So that's why I took the job. I had no intention of working for a tech company. I just wanted to work um, sort of close to acquisitions. How did you really get a job at a law firm in China, by the way? Oh, the, that first job? So yeah. That 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 first job, it, it wasn't it wasn't truly a law firm, although they did do some law work. It was a consulting company, right? So they helped companies from abroad um, do foreign direct investment in China instead of JVs in China. So if you want to do business in China, you have to do a JV with a local company, right? And so they helped navigate sort of the complex regulatory system that is China. And, um, you know, they did that by directly advising companies. They put out um, content sort of on how to do that broadly. Um, so it was basically like they had to do law because it was part of their value proposition, but they weren't like a proper law firm, let's say. And, and I think I just got the job because um, I was willing to work for free initially. And like I worked really hard for them. And, uh, you know, sort of economic circumstances allowed me to do that. And, um, you know, within, I don't know, three or six months that turned into a job. And I, that's, I knew that I wanted that, right? Like I came in saying to the guy who hired me, I was like, I'm doing this because I want a job here. So I need to know after six months. And if I'm not on track for that, like you should let me know. And he's like, cool. Um, and so that, that was sort of like, we had negotiated that previous to me coming on. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to say no to free labor for anyone. Totally. Really. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. And then you, make yourself indispensable and then they, you know, they have to keep you. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So was this an international firm or is your Chinese just that good that you can like work professionally in it? Um, My Chinese was pretty good. It was pretty good. Uh, But it's, it, it was no longer, it's no longer that good. And the thing is as a foreigner, you know, working for this company, my, my job necessarily it wasn't to necessarily understand the regulatory environment. It was like to help BD and market the business to clients that then, you know, the Chinese team could then serve. Right. So like to to set that type of business up, you kind of need both, let's say people capable of understanding the regulatory system, but then people also able to bring in deals and able to, you know, write, um, uh, reports that help win business. And so that's, that was my job primarily. It was to write reports and bring in business, you know, 
And, you know, being Indian American, it was cool because we got to, you know, work with Indian multinationals as well as American multinationals and, and try to, you know, win their business. Nice. So wait, how many languages do you speak? All right. Fluently, I would say one, maybe none, depending on if you ask, you know. <laughs> I think your company. English is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I can, so I can speak, I can speak, um, Mandarin Chinese. Okay. Now, I mean, I don't know. So my girlfriend, actually, she's, she's, she's from, uh, Chicago, you know, not ethnically Chinese, but her Chinese is sick. Like she was there for 10 years. And so her Chinese is awesome. So compared to her, my Chinese is is very bad. Uh, but you know, um, it's okay. And then I can speak Telugu, which is sort of my native tongue. That's where my parents are. That's what my parents speak. Uh, it's from South India and Hindi a little bit. Um, not too well. So, you know, what is that for? And then, um, you gotta like I throw studied- Spanish or something in there, right? Like Spanish yeah, or st- French st- or something I, that everyone totally, kind of knows like, st- a few words of. I studied Spanish in school, but, but you know, that shit doesn't stay with you. There's like, there's like, unless I move to a country that whose native language is whose main language is Spanish. It's tough. It's tough to like have that command and that fluency. You know what I mean? Where totally, totally. I have a lot of Hispanic friends though. Um, like my roommate in college for four years was from Spain. And so he's, he's kind of helped me like, you know, when we're, when we're around, when we're drinking and having fun, you know, the Spanish comes out, but you know, um, my conjugation is very bad. I'll put it that way. Like Chinese, you don't need any verb conjugation, right? It's like, you know, subject, verb, object. It's very That is nice. That is nice about Chinese. It's very straightforward. I think that's why yeah. Chinese people, like even Chinese Americans tend to be more direct and straightforward too, because that's just like, it's part of the language. There's no it way is. to be like passive aggressive and beat around the bush. Like you just can't even do it. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, if you, you know, there's a, there's a comedian, Jimmy Oyang, um, who was in Silicon Valley and he's a standup special on Netflix right now. He says something really funny. I think it's Cantonese, um, descent, but he says something really funny where he's like, it's impossible to leave an Asian household with high self-esteem. And it's true because culturally, you know, our, you know, our parents tend to be very, uh, direct, right. Uh, and just very straightforward about things. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's no like boundaries, no filter on anything. People would, I like, I lived in China for a summer in 2008, cool. um, just like interning and doing stuff. But people would just come up to you and be like, I'd, I'd go to the store, like I'd go shopping and I would try on a pair of pants and I would just be like, eh, it's not, I, I don't love it. Like not for me, you know, like not be, not because it doesn't fit or anything. It's just maybe not my style or I just don't want to buy your pants for whatever totally. reasons, it's really none of your business. But then the lady would just be like, yeah, you're too fat. Like straight up. And this isn't even coming from family or people I know. It's like coming from the lady at the store who's supposed to be a salesperson trying to sell me her stuff. And she just gives zero fucks about even selling something to me. She just wants me to know like, these are the facts. You're too fat for these pants. That's it. Totally. Totally. It's just, it's just cultural. I mean, it's just, it's just what it is. And, um, you know, so it's very interesting seeing the interaction between my mom, who's very, who's very much like that, and my girlfriend, who's American, who sort of had a had a good, you know, supportive family life. It's it's interesting seeing them interact, and you know, see them discuss issues. I'm just like, All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna bow out of this conversation. Yeah. Go go to the other room. I gotta they, go. Well, I, I gotta call. <laughs> exactly. Oh, would you look at that? I have business to attend to. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. totally. Yeah. So, uh, no, that's like super awesome. So then you're in China, you, you kind of get all these odd jobs, you get into the startup world. And then at what point did you decide to come back to the States and, uh, you know, start, I guess you came back and then did you go straight to New York and get into these like silly business ideas with the implants and stuff or was yeah. that? Yeah. Tell me about that. No, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Like I realize as I'm sort of describing a timeline kind of jumps around. So, yeah. So, you know, graduated, went to China, worked overseas and um, came back after that company sold. And it was sort of a natural transition point for me. And um, that's when I got into this notion of, Hey, like, um, is there something here in technology uh, that's interesting 
And, you know, I had, I planned on going to grad school and, um, I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll just defer again. And I'll just sort of figure out if I can do something here, because I, I, I found, I knew that I, I wanted to sort of do something, um, where I'm building a company. Like I, I sort of knew that that's what I wanted to do after being exposed to a startup in China. Like I was like, you know what, that sounds really fun, but I was like, but will it be in technology or what will it do? Like, I don't have any, you don't really have any skills as a 22, 23 year old. Right. And so you're like, do I need to acquire skills to then build a business around? Maybe I go to grad school first to build a business. And then, you know, I don't know, like sort of reading and sort of looking at the market. I'm like, you know what, you can probably just build a business identifying an opportunity and the skills will come along the way. Um, so, you know, a couple of my friends and I, we just decided to sort of take a stab at entrepreneurship and be like, you know what, let's just try a couple of companies and uh, see, see, see what happens, right? See if we can put something together. Now, keep in mind, a, a lot of, I think I'm pretty cheap. Like even to this day, I'm very cheap. And so I think having a low personal burn rate afforded me, certain risk um, tolerance that I don't think many people um, are able to have today. And so, you know, fully aware of that. And my, the path that I took is not necessarily the best path for people who have family obligations or let's say um, other personal responsibility that they have to, you know, they have payments that they have to make on behalf of their parents, or their kids, things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, after China, I had a good amount of money saved up, um, you know, if you make a U.S. salary in China in 2011, 2012, you live pretty well and you get to you know, save, save a bunch of money. And so, um, yeah, we just sort of threw shit at the wall and, see, and tried to see what happened. And thankfully, one company did sort of stick, and that's the one that we're you know, running today. That's awesome. That's so cool that your first company, I mean, we'll just count it as your first company because the others feel like they don't really even count as real companies. Your first real company... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's stuck. Like how many, I feel like that doesn't happen very often with entrepreneurs. Usually they got to go through a few failures before they learn the lessons they need to make one that works. So totally. that's awesome. And, you know, yeah. And, and keep in mind, you know, I think like there's a level of humility here that I think I have to sort of have where it, which is we're still in like the first quarter of the game, right? Like, in fact, like, we we don't know how the story ends even to this day like the company is running and it's growing really fast today and we're all really happy with it but it's like you know we're in constant competition with other really capable founders and other really capable companies with highly motivated teams and so we don't know where it's going to go right but we're confident about our position and, and all that stuff but i do think it's like it's it's fair to say like the we're it's not a it's not a foregone conclusion that the company will exist forever today, right? We're still in the building phase. We're still really hungry. Yeah, I think that's a great attitude to have too. You should never, you know, I don't think any founders will ever reach a place where they're like, okay, this is it. I'm done. Like I'm done building. I've reached the top, you know, like you're you're constantly building and iterating and making it better and growing. Um, Cool. So... Yeah. So you mentioned earlier Wing Chun, and I know you're into martial arts and jujitsu. Uh, tell tell people kind of like what you're about outside of work, because you do you you have a lot of interests and you do a lot of cool things. And also, if you can break down all the different kinds of martial arts you do, like what is the difference between Wing Chun and jujitsu and all of those things? Because I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So um, you know, look, there are people that exist today that look like normal people and i'm not one of them that are like really amazing at martial arts that look super unsuspecting right um especially in jiu-jitsu because jiu-jitsu i think so let me back up and maybe answer the question directly and say depending on my view is that there's three types of martial arts there's like striking martial arts there's like grappling martial arts and there's some weird thing that some people say exists called trapping martial arts, which is like the distance between like striking range and grappling range. And so grappling, you have to be really close. You have to grab somebody, right? So that's like judo, jujitsu, wrestling, you have to grab them. Striking, like you're fully extended and the distance is a little bit longer, right? And so that's like boxing, that's like Muay Thai, that's like karate, that's like Taekwondo, right? Full, fully extended. And then there's like trapping, which is like Wing Chun, which is sort of in the middle of like grappling and being fully extended. 
And so, um, so those are the, the three different martial art categories, I think, you know, that's how I consider it, uh, or how to organize them. And, um, sort of UFC one kind of showcased that you need to know how to grapple and you need to know how to wrestle to like be a competent martial artist because, you know, UFC one was like, and, and sort of the subsequent UFCs were originally designed to showcase, you know, what is the most powerful martial art? Who's the best martial artist in the world. Right. And that sort of proved the dominance of grappling arts, right? Because you can, they had no rounds. It was like 200, 300 pound people against 150 pound people. Uh, and the grapplers usually won, right? So over the years, I think martial arts in general have kind of coalesced into a combined form where like every competent, every real uh, mixed martial artist is training in grappling. They have a wrestling background. They have, you know, some sort of striking background and sort of the market of fighting has kind of proven that the dominant martial arts are like some, some striking probably, you know, with kicks like Muay Thai. Um, although some people, um, with like karate or Taekwondo backgrounds have done really well. Um, some grappling, you know, wrestling or jujitsu is necessary or, ju or judo, if you think about Ronda Rousey is necessary. And so I think a really well-rounded fighter probably has some components of all of these arts. Right. And so for me, my parents put me in martial arts when I was a kid, when I was eight, and they were like, you just need discipline and you need an outlet to like, you know, just take your energy out. And it's pretty formative for me. And it's just something that stuck by me, um, over the years. So, um, I've trained a number of different martial arts, you know, with the business, it's, it's pretty hard to be as consistent in jujitsu as I'd like to be. Um, you ask my gym, they're like, you know, you know, they always make fun of me for it. Um, but you know, I, I think, I think, Anything that you can do that's difficult, whether it's physical or mental, um, sort of builds your character and helps you uh, become the best person that you can be, right? Um, I don't think it's success. I think it's failure. And the thing about getting good at martial arts is you have to get beat up a lot. We have to lose a bunch of matches, right, to be competent in martial arts. At least in a martial arts, it's like actually valuable, right? Like if you do some sort of fake energy martial art, you're not fighting anybody and they'll get your ass kicked if you get into a fight. Right. So like What's any a real fake energy martial art. I don't want to, I don't want to diminish anyone's shit, but like, I've seen no, I, I honestly don't know. Okay. So, all right. Is it like with like, you just like you sit around with crystals and you gently touch each other. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So there are a bunch of videos and any of your listeners can go and Google, you know, let's say like, fake martial arts, right? And just they'll find a, 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 a bunch of YouTube videos of like proclaimed masters getting the shit kicked out of them by like somebody who's like trained two years on like boxing, right? And I don't want to demean any, you know, specific martial arts or anything like that. Um, but there are a lot of bullshit ones for sure. Wait, is this like, is, is this like Star Wars stuff? Kind like of. May the force be with you? Kind of. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, you know, there's certain martial arts that are like, they're like, you just have to like, so for example, Steven Seagal is an example of a bullshit martial artist, right? Great actor. Actually, the movies are really solid, but like, you know, but he's, he's a huge dude, right? He's like, I don't know, six, five, six, six, 250, 300 pounds. He can probably beat up most people just by virtue of his size. Cause that matters. But he's not like good enough to let's say you put him against uh, a competent UFC, you know, let's say you put him against Brock Lesnar, you put him up against any, any wrestler, any fighter, he's not going to win. And so I want to be careful of like diminishing specific martial arts. You know what I mean? Cause I, I think they're all good. I just think you have to be realistic about like, you have to be realistic about what you can do if you train, let's say in one for like 10 years, like how competent does that make you in the street in addition to that i also really like marksmanship and shooting and, and guns and stuff so um i think that's also a really important martial art and um i advise you know yeah i mean i advise anybody who's interested in martial culture to, to also like train marksmanship and and shooting and stuff like that too nice but maybe that's How a separate issue <laughs> no no that's all i mean that's all really cool to know because you are interested in all these like kind of like less common things you know most people they're like oh yeah i like to uh make bread know, 
Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> really popular. Make bread, making bread, everybody, okay. they're out of, they're yeah. out of that shit in the grocery store now. <laughs> that has never been a thing until quarantine. Totally. But yeah, like we needed, I think we needed baking yeast or something for like mm-hmm. this recipe, uh, not bread recipe. And we couldn't find it in stores anywhere because everybody's yeah. on this bread making tray now. Totally. It's like trending on YouTube. You know, there's, I mean, there has to be some sort of business opportunity around like catering to that community of bread makers. Right. You know? But it's like, it just happened out of the blue during quarantine. Like, I don't think anybody could have predicted it or f- it was pretty unforeseeable. I, I would say. So, so for me personally, homemade bread is like guilt-free carbohydrates. Like I actually feel great when I eat homemade bread. I'm like that. This doesn't count. I'm fine eating this. <laughs> it's healthy. <laughs> it's the healthy carbs. Totally. Totally. Cool. So other than martial arts, uh, sh- shooting and what, wait, what was the other word you used for it? Um, Target, sharpshooting, target shooting. Yeah. Yeah. I guess mark- marksmanship. Marksmanship. And, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Marksmanship. Yeah. Other than those things, like what, and what are your, any other hobbies you have or what else do you do with your free time? You know, I mean, I hike a lot. Um, I love, sort of being outdoors and, um, you know, frequently I'll take a podcast with me, um, or an audio book, put it on two X and just go for a nice walk. And, um, I think that's, it's honestly probably one of the most profitable activities for the business that I do, um, is just, you know, sort of disconnecting, um, broadly from, you know, my notifications and just, you know, downloading a podcast and just going, going for a hike. I love doing that. You know, I've been learning how to cook again due to quarantine you know, before, honestly, before quarantine, I mean, I would order Postmates or Uber Eats almost every day, like almost every day. And so it's been interesting sort of learning about food and sort of learning about, because that's, you know, that's the feel that you put into your body that sort of creates you, right? So um, that's been, that's been interesting. It's been a new thing to sort of understand. Um, that's why you think homemade bread isn't carbs. <laughs> Because <laughs> compared to your Postmates and Uber, it's that's pretty good stuff. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, totally. It's tasty and it's healthy and you're like, damn, like, you know, we made this. It's like, it's like good shit, you know, um, sort of full life cycle. It's made by you. Uh, you know, what else? I don't know. I play a lot of video games. So, um, yeah, I play a ton of video games. So there used to be a time when my friends and I we used to play video games competitively, you know, back in the Counter-Strike days. I don't know if... You know, you have to be sort of above 30 to remember those days. Um, but yeah, uh, play a ton of video games. Um, what, are, on what, are your, what are your favorite video games? I don't know any, but I presume some of the listeners might. So I really love a game called Overwatch, which is a first-person shooter. Um, it's sort of a team-based shooter. Um, you know, it's kind of like you... Uh, you get together with five other people. You can get a pre-made group together, um, or you can kind of just find, you know, five random people on the internet and sort of go play together and you play other six player teams. And, um, it's just really fun. It's competitive. There's strategy involved. There's teamwork involved. So to me, it's like, um, like the thing that I love about business is that you have a team, you work together, you have a strategy, and then you get to go execute against that strategy. Like, that that behavior even removed from work i actually enjoy some of the stress about work of course is that there's existential threat right like there's threat of messing up because you know maybe that costs the business money maybe it costs a job right and so there's a lot of secondary um emotional i want to say externalities associated with like strategizing and making a decision in business but when it comes to a game it's like I get to do the things that I love about work in a context where there's no real cost to failure other than fun. Right. And so part of the thing that I'm trying to work on, honestly, when it comes to work is like having that same sort of carefree decision-making approach, because I think that actually leads to better outcomes um, with work, right. Than worrying about the cost or worrying about failure. So um, yeah, that's, that's why I play video games. That's why I love them. And um, you know, yeah, they're just, it's a fun way to, to sort of keep in contact even with your friends during quarantine. For sure. For sure. Cool. So I always like to wrap up with this question for all my guests, but uh, what is 
the number one biggest piece of advice you have for somebody who's just starting out as a founder or who's listening to this and maybe they're in college right now or they're just, they're just you know getting into this and they're like, I want to be Tasia one day. What is your biggest piece of advice for them? <laughs> well, I mean, it's cliche. It's been said before, but it's like, you know, I think the first thing that people have to realize is that not only not only should they want to be me, but they can't be me. They should be the highest version of themselves, right? Um, they should they should figure out what it is they want to do. And I think the practical way to do that is, you know, the following. Number one, I think it's really important at some point in your life to disconnect from the deluge of information that we're all subject to. And like, you know, disconnect from social, disconnect from the news, and it's like go on a low information diet. I think Tim Ferriss popularized the term. The second thing is to probably read books that have existed for thousands of years, um, right? So like the classics, you know, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, you know, um, Aristotle, even the Bible, like, you know, the Quran, like things that have sort of, that speak to the human condition that, that, that have existed for a long time and that probably will exist for a long time. There are probably a couple of books written in the last 50 years that, that I expect to exist for the next thousand or 2000, but not many. Right. So maybe you can read some of those. Um, and like, what are, what are some watch. of those? What are some of those just so people can check them out? So I, I really like a guy's writing, uh, Nassim Taleb. He, he, uh, wrote the black swan he wrote anti-fragile he wrote i'm skin in the game and so he's um he's in the options trader um sort of by trade and i think he's a mathematician by training and i think i mean i may be mistaken but i think he got his math phd after he had made a lot of money as an options trader i, I may be mistaken on the timeline but his books reference a lot of classical philosophy but sort of weave them into like practical modern concerns about making decisions in, in life and so i think I think, um, you know, his work will be sort of resilient and, and what he terms anti-fragile. So the concept of anti-fragility anti is basically something actually grows in response to stress rather than is broken by it. So bodies are anti-fragile to a point, right? We adapt through exercise and through stress to a point. And so uh, I think his work in some ways is anti-fragile as well as the classical works, right? Like when times are hard, you want to lean on Marcus Aurelius. You, do, you don't want to lean on, you don't want to lean on that blog post about how to market to your users, right? And so I think people need to sort of read the, the works that will stick around for a long time and disconnect from like, I don't know, the deluge of tweets and Instagram posts and stuff like that. I think after, you know, so step two is reading, right? And I think, I don't know how long, I mean, I don't know how long they should do that, honestly, but I think afterwards they'll get a, a better sense of themselves and i think they can earnestly ask the question like what do they want to do and my, and my personal framework has been this i've always believed like you know you have to meet your base level needs right you have to meet your economic needs and like to truly be um, who you're meant to be so you have to figure out how to make money and like make enough money to where you don't have to worry about money and Maybe the way to do that is to start a business. Maybe the way to do that is to do a trade. Sorry, that's my cat. I'm sure you can hear. Um, <laughs> Mitt, <laughs> she she she's wants to play, and so um, it's actually a rescue from Shanghai. You know. Uh, no way! How did you bring yeah. the cat over? You just carried it on the plane. Yeah, just got its shots, carried it on the plane. Yeah, totally. nice. I wish I could yeah. do that with my dog. <laughs> yeah, you can. Um, but dogs, I think, like they bark a lot when they're scared like cats are just like quiet and hide right like that's all they do um so yeah i think um third they have to solve the money problem and that could be a business that could not be that could be setting your, your that could be setting up your life so that you're an expert in a skill so whenever you need money you can leverage that skill to make money like i think the paths are different for different people um and i think once that's done they'll probably find out what they want to do. I, I, you know, um, and then I think they can decide, Hey, look, I actually really like building a business. I want to go all the way. I want this to be my career. I really like freelancing. I want to do this all the way. But I think one of the mistakes that we make as a society is we, we reduce the worth of people to their level of economic contribution to the world. Right? Like I think, um, we worry too much about our meaning and our self-worth in the context of work. 
and we define ourselves by that. And, and what I urge young people in particular to do is like to, to not do that, like to treat work as work. It's a way to make money. Uh, but, you know, if they're lucky enough to have stumbled upon the first thing that they're doing that makes money, that also gives them a, a high level of meaning. Like, you know, there are a lot of people and a lot of trades who are able to do that. And that's awesome. You know, I think that's, that's the holy grail as a word of work. But I don't think that many people are in that situation. And I think that's okay. Like, it's totally fine. Maybe they will find it. Maybe they won't. Maybe they're working just the way to make money so they can do the things that they love, right? But they need to find that question for themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. That was such deeper and like more existential advice than I was expecting, but I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, before we wrap, do you have time for a quick game? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So we can either play this or that, or we can play the word association game. And since you're the guest, you get to choose. We'll play word association. Okay. So I've got 10 words for you. I'm going to say a word and you tell me, you say the first word that comes to mind. Okay. Super fast. All right. Startup. Fun. Founder. Difficult. Tech. Interesting. Superpower. Valuable. Travel. Mind altering. Martial arts. Necessary. Music. Beauty. China. Experience. Bootstrap. Can I, I don't want to say the same word again. I guess I'm cheating. Um, what are you going to say? I'll, okay. I'll say a path. Yeah. Okay. And final one, passion. Everything. Nice. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tasia, for being here. Uh, you guys can check out... Tasia, we're working on building out his personal branding site, actually, but that will be Tasia Yenamandra. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Nice. Tasia Yenamandra.com. Uh, I'll include a link in the show notes so you can go ahead and click that. Won't try to spell it out for you. And <laughs> you can go check out his company, Gun, at gun.io. Um, and where else can people, am I missing anything? Where else can people find you? And what's the best way for people to contact you? Yeah, I mean, um, I think you spelled it out. Those are the domains. Shoot me an email at teja at gun.io. Um, you know, I always check my email. So any questions, comments, concerns, direct them to me. Happy to help if you're working on the business. So, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Tasia. We'll include all that in the show notes as well. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Startup Happy Hour, and we'll see you again next week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Startup Happy Hour, sponsored by Content Allies. If something we said today resonated with you, please share our episode on social media and sign up for our email list at startuphappyhourpodcast.com. Happy Hour doesn't have to end just because this episode is over. Continue the conversation with us at startuphappyhourpodcast.com or on Instagram at startuphappyhour.com.